Years ago when my family was younger, we'd go on Sabbath afternoon hikes in the woods near our home in Spokane. It was always an adventure. We'd pull weeds out of the ground and toss them at each other as javelins or spears. We'd throw dozens of pine cones for our lab to uh, retrieve, and inevitably, my kids would pester the anthill. I deterred them. I felt I should. These were insignificant creatures, but they were still gods, little beings, and deserved some protection. After a poke or two, and watching the lazy mound be transformed into just a buzz of activity, I sometimes try to make a few repairs, you know, clean it up a bit, wondering as I did so what it must be like to be so small, so insignificant, so susceptible to such repeated uh, distress. (laughs) Of course, It's impossible for me to know what those ants were thinking or for them to know about me and my experience. There is an impassable barrier between me and them. The situation, I can't help but think, is somewhat analogous to the distance between me and God, only infinitely more. The gap separating God from humanity is vast. And our situation, well, it's even more desperate than those ants with my kids hovering around them. The problem of sin, the problem of human suffering and pain, the inescapable pit of evil and death or beyond a human solution. And God knew it. So he, he uh, stepped into the situation. He did the unthinkable. He did the unimaginable. He took upon himself humanity. He became a man not just to sort out the confusion and to rebuild a collapsed world, but also to offer a new life, altogether new life, eternal life. That really is the essence of Christianity. Christmas is more than just the birth of a baby. And I realize as a father and grandfather how important that is. So when I say that, I know that it's, it's even more important than that. What happened at Bethlehem with that baby was of a completely different order than anything that had ever happened before or ever will again. And John bundles that all up into one pithy sentence when he says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The, The one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Last week we focused on just one word, word. And that title, as you recall, 
in that title, John makes the point with no uncertain terms that this word is the eternal God who existed from the beginning with God, who was God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is life giver. He is life maker. He is Jesus Christ. And he says, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind. You can search all you want for purpose and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in so many different ways, but he is the one. Only in him do we have life and life forever. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. This week, we're just going to take two more words, the third and fourth for our study this morning. He became flesh, became flesh. If we take Christmas and we strip it of everything, all the seasons hustle and bustle, the trees, the lights, the ornaments, the decorations, the cookies, the pounds. (laughs) If we take it all, take it all away, remove everything, what remains is a stunning but profound truth. The eternal God becoming human. That's Christmas in its essence. And it's called the incarnation. And it is the most stupendous, the most significant, the most influential truth that the world has ever heard. God becoming human being. It's the bedrock of Christianity. But it's often neglected and forgotten this time of year. Amidst all the gifts, all the get-togethers, among all the pageants and presents, therefore I think it's good for us to take a few moments and think deeply, think clearly about the incarnation, especially during the season that's built around it. John says it so succinctly that the significance can be missed. It's a momentous truth. Believers and scoffers have debated this narrative, this story, since the Bible recorded it. So whatever we can do this morning in just a few minutes will not even begin to To scratch the surface, it's going to be lame in comparison to the truth that's there. But it's worth it. It's worth our time. It's worth our effort to think for a few moments about this momentous truth. First, John 1.14 is clear. And we talked a bit about it last week. And that is that the one who became flesh existed before He was flesh. The birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary was not the beginning of this person, the Son of God. Rather, it it was that He has always been. He always was. And He began to be, at that point, what He was eternally not. Divinity took on humanity forever forever. Now, why would such a one 
do such a thing. One word, well, hyphenated. Self-sacrificing, benevolent, generous, merciful, saving love. That's what would do it. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. Ever since our tragic loss of innocence back at the Garden of Eden, there's been a barrier between us and God. And over the centuries, that barrier became a gaping chasm because sin perverted the picture that we have of God, the picture that we have of his character. And, and begot, God became, well, more than misunderstood. He became something heinous. People conceived of him more like what they were than what he is. Through the centuries, through Old Testament times, God did everything he could to help us know, everything he could to help us understand. He, threw, he spoke through people. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through his word. He spoke through his dreams, through dreams to help us. But it was never quite enough, and he knew it wouldn't be. So that's why Christ's incarnation was always planned and always so imperative. The book of Hebrews says it clearly. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Although God's majesty, although God's glory was was veiled in human flesh, this one, this God-man was a perfect picture of God. Jesus, in his purity, in his perfection, in his character, in his love, in his long-suffering, in his grace, in his justice. Jesus, in his transforming power, was God on display. Jesus confessed to Philip. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And that was the mission of Jesus, to show us the Father to show us clearly the incarnation is not a hope. The incarnation is not just a fancy. The incarnation is not just a vague expectation. It's not just a promise. It's an accomplished, solid fact. As solid as the earth is beneath our feet, so is God coming to be with us. So that His goodness, so that His truth so that his hope and joy could become ours and our brokenness his. That's why he came. Second Corinthians 5, 11, Paul says it clearly, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The incarnation of Jesus. God taking on himself, human nature, 
That didn't save us in and of itself, but it was an essential link in God's plan for our salvation. C.S. Lewis made an interesting analogy with this, God's incarnation, and with man's best friend, a dog. So just imagine, there he is, lying at your feet, your dog. Imagine, for the moment, that your dog and every other dog in existence is in deep distress. Okay, this is a far-fetched analogy, but go along with me if you would. Some of you love dogs, so it's not very hard for you to go there. But some of you love cats. And that's a different story. But, <clears throat> but just imagine for a moment, if it would be that you could help all the dogs in the world by becoming a dog, would you be willing to become a dog? Now think of it just for a moment. Would you throw down, would you put down your human nature? Would you set aside and leave your loved ones? Would you leave your job? Would you leave your hobbies? Would you leave your art? Would you leave your literature, your music? Would you leave everything? And would you choose instead the intimate companionship of your beloved dog instead? Would you do that? The poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak. Would you do that? Would you do that? Christ, by becoming man, a limited thing, to become a man, which to him was, man was precious in his sight, yet his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father, he had to leave. Why did he do that? Why? Unselfish, sacrificial love for you and me. That's why. Because my sin, your sin, meant death for you, for me. And Jesus became flesh in order that, in behalf of you and me. Because only he could do that. Only God could do that. Only God in human flesh could do that. Only he, God in human flesh, could bear the curse. Only he, God in human flesh, could bear the penalty on the cross. Only he could be the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice for my imperfect life. That's a great exchange that God accomplished for my eternal security for your eternal security. And that's the truth. That's the truth that this time of the year is about this incarnation. But there's a second truth that is encompassed in Christ's work here, becoming incarnate, and that is his work as our mediator, our advocate, and our intercessor. And it's found in those two words again where John says, Jesus became flesh. It's packed into that momentous reality. Jesus, at his incarnation, binding himself through that incarnation to our humanity, forevermore linked in his heart, in his reality to us, his focus on us, teaches us 
something of extreme importance. Amazed by this picture of self-sacrificing love, Paul expounds in Philippians 2, 5 to 7, Christ, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. No reputation. A bondservant, Paul says, made like us. Ellen White says the angels were amazed. The creator was created like his creation. Max Cato says that the divinity would enter the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and the presence of a carpenter. Amazing. But he did. He did. And this remarkable condensation, condescension, sorry, not water, condescension, Ellen White in Desire of Ages says... It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. So even that. But she goes on. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. In other words, what she's saying is that Jesus, when he became man, took on our weaknesses, our ailments. Isaiah, speaking of the same thing prophetically, said of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was. He took our fallen nature in its diseased and deteriorated condition. He did. But let me say... And this is important that this in no way implies that Jesus assumed our tainted, sin-prone, disobedient, inclined tendencies. That's what we call a propensity to sin. He did not assume those. Yes, he took on human nature, but he did not take on our sinful nature. I have an inborn inclination Toward selfishness, inborn, inbred in me, toward selfishness, towards rebellion against God. Jesus' incarnation did not share that. He did not have that. He did not, did not share this sinful disposition that has been passed on from Adam to every human being since. Ellen's White, her perspective is helpful. Be careful, she says, exceedingly careful as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin. He took upon himself human nature and was tempted in all points as human nature is tempted. He could have sinned. He could have fallen. But not for one moment was there in him an evil propensity. He was assailed with temptations in the wilderness. Get this. As Adam was assailed with temptations in Eden. Yes, Jesus was tempted. The same way Adam and Eve were tempted. The difference is, he was perfectly obedient, even to death. And that's why Paul could say of Christ, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, that he knew no sin. And that's why Peter could speak of him as the lamb without blemish and without spot. He was. And that's why he can be my savior and yours. He died for our sins, my sins. He had no sins of his own to bear. But he did know humanness. He did. He experienced, Scripture tells us, he experienced the gamut of human emotion. He knew the depths of disappointment. He knew sorrow. He knew grief. He knew heartache. He knew the perils we face and the pain we have. Like Paul said, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. He was made, Paul says, like you and me. He shared our disappointments. He shared our burdens. He knew that what that was like. But, he goes on to say, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yes, oppressed, yes, mistreated, yes, abused, yes, ultimately falsely accused and tried and crucified and suffered the most cruel of all deaths, crucifixion. In all points, he was tempted and tried as we are. And because of that, Paul says, because he suffered, Hebrews 2 verse 8, when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's the reason for the incarnation. God's incarnation in human flesh is his earth, his God's solution. Jesus' earthly sojourn when God became human so tied him to us and us to him. It tied us in ways that we can hardly conceive. The eternal flesh, the eternal Word, I'm sorry, made flesh is now our mediator, our advocate, our intercessor. And he knows exactly what we need because he's been where we're at. He knows exactly our challenges. He knows every life struggle. And this reality is our constant hope, our constant help. When Jesus stepped from heaven to this sin-cursed earth and died a life that was perfectly lived for God. He died our substitute. And with that, he became our reconciler, our advocate, our mediator forevermore. And we can praise God for the help we have in Jesus Christ. Like Paul said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He is our reconciler. Christ can do in me and for me everything I need for life and for eternity. So far we've seen two things here in Christ's incarnation. First, it expresses that God is love and this, that unblemished divinity would become blemished by humanity to become our perfect saving sacrifice. And then we saw just with the last point how the incarnation links us with God as our 
mediator, as our advocate. But there's one final thing that the incarnation displays, and that is the possibility of a God-filled, God-surrendered, God-possessed life. The possibilities for us. Although Jesus was fully God and at the same time fully human, he voluntarily set aside his divine powers. He voluntarily put that aside. He met life. He met experience like you and I meet life. And he lived in absolute dependence upon the Father. When the Jewish leaders questioned Jesus about healing that invalid that was at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus said this, Very truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. You see, Jesus couldn't heal this man by himself. Why? Well, he was God. Yes, he was God, but he had set aside those divine powers. He had willingly, voluntarily set those all aside. Christ lived a beautiful, victorious, and God-honoring life in such a fashion, not because he had some kind of power that was available to him that's not available to us, but because of his intimate faith and his absolute trust in God. That's how. That's why. He wasn't able to do a perfect life because he possessed something that human beings can't possess. He met life challenges the same way we meet them, by bold confidence in God. Daily, moment by moment, he yielded himself to the Father and to the empowerment of the Spirit. We have the same opportunity. It's ours. But we even have more advantage than Jesus. Let me explain. You see, because Jesus is is ascended, because he's now ruling, because he's now ministering in our behalf in heaven, as Paul rejoiced, we have victory in him. Paul says, in Colossians 1:27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There it is right there. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, this one who was made in the likeness of human flesh, who knows everything about what it is to hope and hurt. He knows everything what it is to have joy and sadness. Who knows everything what it is to have trials and testing. He takes up residence in you by his Spirit. And his purpose, with your consent, is to reproduce himself in you. That's what he wants to do. His beauty, his joy, his peace, his power in you, in me. That's what Christmas is all about, friends. The incarnation, the enfleshment, we might say, of God on earth in Jesus Christ and of God on earth in you, in me. The eternal Son who always possessed divinity took on a second nature, human nature, for eternity. Fully God, 
fully man. And he did it to save you. And such love deserves, no, requires a response. Which is why John makes the appeal that uh, Gabby read at the outset of our time together. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Can you imagine that? Just think of those words for a moment. It'd be easier, at least in my mind, it'd be easier to imagine uh, the, the businesses, the offices of Tesla or SpaceX not recognizing Elon Musk. It'd be easier for me to imagine. It'd be easier for me, for me to imagine Microsoft headquarters not knowing Bill Gates. It'd be easier for me to imagine Amazon headquarters saying, who's that when Jeff Bezos walks in? than to think, to imagine that the world wouldn't recognize its creator. But that's what happened. John was puzzled and ashamed, as he says in John 1.11, that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus' own people, Israel, Jesus' own people who had the prophets, who had the the prophecies, who had the Old Testament scriptures, who had the religious ceremonies and the, and the heritage and were waiting for the Messiah. They missed him. Most of them. They missed him because he was neither the Messiah that they had been expecting nor the Messiah that they wanted. This week I read about a measles outbreak in Europe, especially in Italy. There's been a huge surge, maybe you've heard of it too, of the infections this year and deaths as a result. And it's due in a large part to the low vaccination rate because so many children and adolescents are susceptible to the disease because they're not vaccinated. I remember a few years ago when I went on a short-term mission trip, and before I went, I had to get several vaccinations. The doctor injected me with a little dose of whatever it was, I can't even remember what it was now, but it was a little dose. Not enough for me to get sick, but enough for me to build up an immunity so that I would not get sick. In other words, I had just enough of the disease to to keep me from catching the real thing. And that's what happened in Jesus' day. The Jews had just enough religion to keep, keep them from catching real faith. And that's what happens all the time today. We have just enough to keep us from really catching it. Many people are impervious to the good news because they've had just enough of religion to inoculate them against the real thing. Many have what you might call a screen door relationship with Jesus. <laughs> they see him. Yeah, he's out there. They can see him out there. He's, they're looking through. They're looking through the screen. And, but he's not on the throne of their hearts. There's something there, like a screen door. There's, there's some recognition. There's prayer. There's occasional Bible study. There's going to church. There's believing in truths, the Bible, but there's no 
heart conversion. There's no life surrender. There's no daily taking up the cross. John says it doesn't have to be that way. John 1, 12, and 13, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. You see what John is saying here, we may be all children of God because of creation, but there's more than just being a child of God because of creation. We must, if he is to be our savior, we must receive him, he says. We must believe in his name. You've got to open up that screen door. In your heart of hearts, you must say to him, come in, be my savior, be my Lord. John also says you've got to believe in his name. That means that you've got to be willing to commit to everything that he is, everything that his name implies. He's Lord, he's savior, he's soon coming king, he's my king, he's Lord. It's more than a head knowledge. It's a heart, a mind, a will, surrender to him. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not a family thing. In other words, it doesn't come to you by good family upbringing, although that helps. Praise God for that. But your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, they may be Christians, but Christianity isn't something you inherit from others. God, it's often been said, has no grandchildren. He's only got children. I've also heard it said that being born in a garage doesn't make you a car any more than being born in a Christian family makes you a Christian. (laughs) It's true. You can go to church on Sabbath. You can believe in Jesus coming back soon. You can be baptized. You can join a Bible study. You can call yourself a Christian. You can do all those things and still not be a child of God. Become a child of God is something that happens personally, individually. Your choice, your decision to Give yourself to God in faith, believing, saying yes to Him as Lord, Savior, soon coming King. It happens sort of the same way, I think, that the Virgin Mary became pregnant. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but let me just make the comparison. When Mary submitted to God and said to that angel, I am the Lord's servant. When she said those words, a miracle was conceived in hers, in her. And it's the same miracle that happens in you and me when we say those same words, I am the Lord's servant. When you, when I submit to God by faith, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in our hearts, believing that he is and what he says is true and what he says he means and accepting him as Savior, we spiritually, you might say, conceive his life within our bodies. 
the same way Mary conceived Jesus in hers. Just as the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Mary physically, when she placed her faith in the Word of God, so the life of Jesus Christ is born in you and me spiritually when we place our faith in God. Now, you don't give birth to a child, (laughs) but you become a child, a child of God. That's how. And it's a miracle every time it happens. And as the angel said to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. So I want to ask you right now, are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? Have you invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart, into your life? If you have, you are. If you doubt, the Spirit of God may be prompting you a bit. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin. Maybe there's some area of disobedience to His Word. Maybe there's some areas of resistance to His will in your life. But you need only, right now, pray in faith and believe and receive and open your heart and invite Him to reign. Would you do that now? Would you do that now as we pray? Father in heaven, we are inviting you anew and afresh into our lives this morning. Come in, reign and rule. We believe that for our sake, you became flesh in Jesus Christ, born of Mary. And today, we receive him as our Savior and our Lord. And believe as well that with that faith, with that yes to you, that we also become your child. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for that gift that Christmas brings to us. That you were born of a child, an infant, God and man in one for us to save us, to reconcile us, and to give us strength and hope for living a life for you forevermore until you return. May we do it to your honor and glory is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.